0: Welcome to Mixed Media Talks for artists to talk, shop, and go deep into the intersections between a wide variety of different media forms and disciplines, process, philosophy, all things that touch art in our lives. I hope to have a little fun with our guests as we do it. I'm your host, Amelia Hogan, a mixed media artist, singer, painter, book artist, and I have a deep love of all things art. I want to know more about what makes us as artists tick. And today's guest is Leah Shane Dixon, who is a visual artist, a painter, digital artist, done a fair amount of interdisciplinary creative works. I think I saw something kind of amazing, which is an anti-gravity abstraction series. Tell us a little more about what that is.
1: The uh, Art After Gravity title was from a small article that art critic Matt Gleason wrote about my art, and I hadn't thought of it at the The time, but I often do compose my abstractions. Like I don't necessarily assign a fixed up direction to them. Like, and some paintings I even write on the back hang at any 90 degree direction. So if people like it with one end up, they can do that. If they like it with something else up, they can do that. And I've even seen some artists have like frames that you can easily like rotate between, you know, like you mount it on the wall and there's a little rotation thing. So you can you can rotate it in whatever way you like. We feel like that day so like my abstractions have been verging into what feels like abstract landscapes and so like yeah that lack of a fixed gravitational point is present in I'd say most of them there's a few that are starting to have like a specific up or down but there's definitely a lot of the ones that I've made recently that are you know anti-gravitational but, you know, kind of landscape based in a sense, like they're starting to coalesce. It's it's kind of Coalescing out of the void, and like some atoms are starting to stick together and have, you know, localized bits of gravity, but not an overriding sense of gravity.
0: Very cool. So let's maybe start at the beginning (laughs) because we haven't really had a chance to talk at length and get to know one another more casually before the pandemic. So, Mm -hmm. what is one of the things that really started you on a journey for doing this? more fully in your life what was that pivotal moment for you where you're like yeah clearly this is what i'm supposed to be doing
1: well it i think from the earliest days when i was like a tween and teen when i was a tween i started drawing just with pencil and paper and mostly did little, you know, trying to copy little cartoon characters. Or later on, when I got into DD, I would like try and draw my DD characters of different kinds dudes with great armor and a really nice jeweled dagger and like a sorceress and uh, stuff like that. But then by the, by the time I got into high school and going to the LA County High School for the Arts, where I was beginning to explore lots of different media. Beyond just pencil and paper, I discovered how I had this this memory of being in my room and there was this one album side that I especially enjoyed listening to that had some tracks with this kind of driving beat. And so I'd be working with my pastel or sometimes paint and just like having color sort of erupt on the page. So kind of doing this in time with the music and kind of honestly just kind of being transported away mm. and without going into a whole lot of detail, I'll just say there were some things I really wanted to be transported away from from going on in my life and so it was a direct vector into a world that was stimulating but not threatening and that was under my control. Sure. More or less I'm not strict control because sometimes I'd be like I'd create something I'd be like wow I don't necessarily like this and I don't know what to do with it or this surprised me or I had no idea it would turn out like this but it was still I could still navigate those things even when the result was not what I expected or hoped for. So yeah, it originally began as a way to travel without leaving my room. Mm.
0: I also started very young in terms of my creative impulses with visual arts. And I find that a lot of artists do a very similar process of going into the paint almost as though it were a living thing or a living space, to music in particular. I know that I paint better when I'm listening to something that triggers that. I mean, it is kind of a limbic system response to my senses, my emotional landscape. When I do even representational stuff, I am absolutely surfing that lyrical wave or that melodic wave or that rhythmic pulse. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I will also add that in the last. I'm going to say not quite, I'll call it actually around two decades that I've been very influenced by the visual music subgenre in particular. And visual music, there's a great book that was published in conjunction with an exhibition that was at the Hirshhorn in DC and at LACMA here in LA that was just called Visual Music. And it goes into quite a bit of depth. It includes things like abstract video, you know, video art that isn't like of people and places and things but it's like shapes and objects and you know geometry and just sort of like abstraction in motion but it can also include things like Kandinsky and Delaunay and other painters whose work can evoke things that are similar to music and ideas that can also be expressed musically like the idea of of color color chords and color harmonies
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: if you take your paintbrush and maybe you have a big fat like a three-inch paintbrush and you just go across canvas or the page or what whatever you're working on like that has kind of a rhythm to it when you have something that repeats at an even space so that has really brought that relationship into focus for me over time and it's something that I aspire to bring into pretty much all of my work. And even, you know, I'm anticipating a return to more digital processes in the near future in the next six months.
2: Mm -hmm. And I've
1: been doing a little bit of digital, but I'll be getting a new computer sometime in the next six months. And that's going to open up a lot more possibilities I'm along on some (laughs) older technology. And I've mostly been doing paint for the last five years or so. It's been 90% plus paint based for me. Mm -hmm. But even once I get back into digital and it'll be more likely that I include elements of my photographic work and recognizable imagery, even when I'm using... Representational imagery. I think about it in a way that's sort of similar to me to music composition. Like maybe there's a background that's like the behind, but then there's something dramatic that comes in. It's like do 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 the composition has a way of expressing itself in a way that feels musical when things start when the pieces start to come together it feels kind of musical to me
0: there's movement in abstract work I I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who just totally doesn't understand modern art and abstract art like for her that's just not That's like she was like I could do that right and she said well I could do that why is that special and I thought about I of course don't think that way at all and I am a huge fan of Jackson Pollock because of that movement of his own physical self in the process of the creation of the work. So it's like a combination of dance and music with a canvas. It's combining multiple kinesthetic elements and auditory elements through rhythm and pattern and composition to create a lot of and to carry forth that movement visually and I just I find that translation totally fascinating like that's immersive to me I couldn't I explained to her why that's so fascinating to me and how and she's like I don't like Picasso at all and I could do that and I could do and stuff and I was like yeah but nobody really could accept a person who has such a deep understanding of visual media and the why behind every visual decision they're making.
1: And I think too, it gets to the point where when you really commit to it, that maybe she could make some abstraction, but could she make an abstraction that if she hung it on the wall, someone would walk in and without looking at the wall tag, they go, oh, this is a Picasso, right? They go, oh, this is a Pollock." I doubt it. I mean, maybe, but I doubt
0: it. I mean, everybody's voice is unique in the work that they create, right? The power of people's art, even if I am also involved in making visual art abstractions in adjacency to somebody else doing visual art abstractions and paintings, is that exactly that color combination and exactly that placement from exactly that moment and that emotional space for me, even if superficially it looks very similar, it's done through my hand and it's done with all of my series of experiences and understandings of composition and color choice and textural choice. And there's nobody that can do that.
1: I think the real point where things shift in my mind is where you can recognize someone else's hand in how they put their aesthetic choices together. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite hobbies is to be able to, or, you know, hobby or skill is to be able to recognize someone's work without having someone tell me who made it. You know, that happens when it could be a combination of any one of a number of factors. I'm starting to see a lot of through lines, even between like my work that's in different media. It's got a different surface texture to it, but I put them together on the wall. and I'm like, oh, yeah, these are totally still members. These might be cousins in one family and these might be the other branch of the family, like with my digital and my painting, but they are related. And I, I'm hoping that over time and especially as I begin to undertake works that do more active combining both the analog world of things like paint and the digital world in the same object, I'm hoping that in time people will begin to see the through line. Yeah. I mean, like my paint work and my digital work.
0: When I was going through art school, I learned a lot about the languages of how to communicate about what's happening with art and intention. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is the power of an abstraction is that it is only enough of a framework so that people can place all of their experiences onto it as a symbol. It can mean a dozen things depending on who's looking at it and who's interacting with it and feeling about it. Like, Rothko's color fields are a fascinating example for me about that. Because yes, other people can do a color field, but nobody else could have done that in that time point in history in exactly that way on that scale, such that everybody looking at it would feel something so drastically different from the next person walking into experience with it. And that's really interesting about why I think abstract art is so impactful and so important.
1: I will also add one of the things I really do try to build in into a lot of my work is what they call the pareidolia effect. Oh, I- it's where you look at a cloud and you might go, oh yeah, that cloud looks like a dragon or a castle or a sailing ship.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: someone else looking at that same cloud might think, hey, that cloud looks like Ethyl Merman or Spongebob, there's a certain quality where it can suggest a number of different things by replicating certain kinds of structure. And a lot of that can be like the structure that happens in nature can be irregular structures. Maybe there's, there's a spray of gravel on a road and it's all completely, it seems kind of completely random, but then there's kind of the structure of wet mud that dries out in the sun and there's that cracking, you know, the L-U-R that happens. You know, it's another kind of structure or honeycombs or meandering rivers. One of my earliest art book influences was called By Nature's Design and it was by photographer William Neal and it was published by the Exploratorium in your Bay Area. So you're probably familiar with the Exploratorium. Oh yeah. It went into text and photographic detail about, I want to say there were six different types of natural structure that he focused on, meandering rivers rivers like honeycomb kind of patterns you know the 120 degree patterns that happen in honeycombs and also bubbles and like basalt columns and stuff like that starbursts spirals and helixes and branching branching I think that's one of them Mm -hmm. and and I think I've had that book since like the early 90s it's totally instinctive for me to observe those patterns when I come across them. And I, I use them as compositional strategies because the best thing about plagiarizing from nature is she won't sue me. Well, is um, it
0: plagiarism or is it just a way of being referential to the world that you're experiencing? Because I, mean, I mean,
1: yes, it is more that. I mean, that's that's my glib little joke about sure. what I'm doing and how I'm, at the very least, I am cribbing from a lot of what nature does and applying it in my
0: It's hard to separate out your experience and having ever been exposed to a way of looking at the world from what you ultimately decide, yeah, that resonates for me. Where everything is referential, everything is derivative in some way. Yes. Because you come to the paint store having gone through the last 50 years of chemical development and engineering such that new colors can be used by you based on previous artists deciding, I want a bluer or blue or a, a or mauve. Or a... There is sort of a, a weird and uncomfortable conversation to be had between people relative to copying and plagiarism versus yeah. derivative yeah Andy Warhol sort of straddled that line in really uncomfortable ways for folks mm-hmm. where does it become yours what's the mechanism by which you take those fractal and or chaos theory elements
1: I like to think of it as the work that if I don't make it it's not getting made. Mm. I mean I feel like people people do abstraction people do swoopy biomorphic stuff with bright colors and paint certainly not unique in that regard but when I'm working on my paintings in the studio there's some surfaces I've had in the studio literally for years and sometimes I'll only take a couple of steps on a given surface in a given session, but when I keep showing up again and again, and the accumulation of steps begins to take settle in on a, on a given object, and I'm doing this not just for one object, because I don't really make one painting at a time. I currently have dozens of in-progress abstractions in my studio right now. They really kind of accumulated. I think it's got to be at least three dozen surfaces. I've got panels. I've got canvases. I started a whole bunch of works on paper. Every time I go in, I try and get at least a couple things, a couple of steps further. Mm. I basically aspire to have most of my work. I feel like I might have some one-offs here and there, but I feel like most of my work will fit into usually just one, but maybe sometimes more series or family. Like if I put all of a certain kind of painting together, people can tell that, oh, this is all family. This was, they've got some similar characteristics that they all share. And there's none that's sticking out like, what's this one doing here? Hmm. You know, what's this Norman Rockwell painting doing in the midst of all this shwoopy abstraction? You know, again, kind of coming back to recognizing artworks without... Reading the wall tag or any accompanying text, like there's something, there's something that is kind of magical about that experience to me, just like being able to add up, oh, you know, I can tell by this specific combination of elements and the textural qualities, it could be the graphical qualities, it could be any one of a hundred things. Like being able to read visual information in visual art is endlessly fascinating that way. And I think it's kind of digging into like our own cognitive processes. It's
0: a very like cerebral and sort of like your brain goes really interesting places. I wonder what your emotional connection is to these abstractions now. Like, obviously, when we're kids and we're horribly ostracized and we need to escape, that's a very different relationship and an emotional relationship in particular to what we're doing. What does that look like for you now?
1: I think there is still an element of that present. You know, the last handful of years have been extremely challenging on many levels. And in some ways, even as things seemed to go from bad to worse, that made me a little more stubborn about, you know what, I'm just going to keep making weird, beautiful art objects anyway, just to counter this tide of awfulness. Yeah. It's definitely still got an element of the process itself being an escape and then the final product also potentially being like a temporary escape for me or someone else i like to try and build paintings whether it's a acrylic painting or a digital painting i like to build them so that there are continued rewards for sustained attention
2: hmm.
1: like sometimes you can just you can look at something and go okay all right it's a picture of david bowie and we all love david bowie and that's great or whatever it is. But like sometimes you can go, Oh, that's pretty much all there is to it. If you can keep looking at something, and especially something that you're going to hang on a wall in somewhere that you inhabit a lot, home, your office, a place that houses art, a gallery or museum, if you can get everything you're going to get out of a painting in 20 seconds, it's like, well, there's a lot of things that can hold your attention for 20 seconds. Sure.
0: Road signs. Road signs. (laughs) Exactly if that.
1: I will also add that there's a layer in my visual work that I speculate about what would it be like actually trying to communicate with entities that aren't human. Sure. If there are cosmic intelligences out there, like how would I signal to them like, hey, there's something going on down here. It's not just an anthill with eight billion human ants occupying it we're paying attention we're looking kind of comes back to the the patterns in nature that i was talking about before and a part of why i like to employ those is Mm. to craft an expression that not you know it doesn't need a specific point of cultural reference and it doesn't even necessarily need to be a human perceiving it for them to be able to recognize some elements like oh hey that sort of looks like the horsehead nebula that's interesting Mm or what have you. So
0: is astronomical stuff a key influence?
1: I I would say like natural phenomena in general, not astronomical, but all the different ways that the different states of matter, I kind of correlate the different states of matter with the four elements. And I know generally people think of there being like three states of matter, solid, liquid, and gas. I consider the fourth state of matter to be energy.
2: Hmm.
1: Trying to suggest A lot of times it'll be the collision of these different types of matter, things that are fluid colliding with things that are solid, energy, patterns, atmospheres. Yeah. Kind of of evoking the surroundings of different kinds of natural worlds, whether it's here on Earth or in space. Some of the landscapes feel like speculative fiction landscapes yeah uh, i'm definitely a big sci-fi and somewhat fantasy nerd
2: hooray
1: yeah yeah you know i'd say my favorite science fiction series is probably deep space nine star
0: trek and my favorite i mean i gotta say there's some good stuff there it is the gift that keeps
1: on giving i actually just discovered it uh, since the pandemic but i've watched the whole thing like three times now and then my favorite fantasy series has got to be the lord of the rings movies yay
0: and, Perfect. Um, you are in good company Yeah, I I sense that we had a
1: simpatico of that. So, yeah. So, yeah, it it all kind of goes in there.
0: So, when it comes right down to it, there are themes that keep coming back as a way to invest in a future that is hopeful. And I think the Roddenberry and in particular Star Trek, subsequent Star Trek bases, are a vision of the future that is hopeful and that we kind of, as humans especially, need something to look out and forward and around us to and for.
1: And that brings me to key concept that really helps me commit to a life in the arts, to a life as an artist is that if we're going to have a better future, we need to envision a possible better future. Mm -hmm. And all the arts can be brought to bear on that. We've definitely reached the point where our technological prowess has far outstripped our of those things, our, our best use of those things for the betterment of Humanity as a whole. There's a few people that are benefiting quite a great deal from it. And that's great. I don't think it needs to come at the cost of millions and millions more living in utter misery. Well, billions if you really want to. I mean, sure. And there's so much that's so entrenched right now and people are like, Oh, that'll, that'll never happen because X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, not with that attitude. It's not. I guess got to get back to work on creative envisioning of alternatives that aren't rigidly defined by the rules of the game that exist at this moment or at the moment of our birth.
0: Like, isn't that the job of artists? Is to be I, able I, to do that?
1: It's absolutely the job of artists. That's exactly what I'm getting at. That's I've never really written fiction seriously, but like the necessity of envisioning a better world and a better story appeals to me sometimes.
0: Do you ever think about venturing into a whole new media in, in terms of literary art? Do you ever?
1: Oh, it, it has
0: it has crossed my
1: mind a number of times. And I did have kind of like a big sprawling fantasy series in mind a trilogy of trilogies if you can believe that
0: i mean that sounds like awesome i mean that
1: sounds awesome but they're saying oh yeah i've got a trilogy of trilogy a trilogy of trilogies in mind but and then and then there's actually writing the trilogy of trilogies and that part is there's the rub you see in any event, I haven't really started seriously putting words to paper for that. It might be the kind of thing where I could benefit from the right collaborator, probably someone who's like really seriously a writer. I'm confident with my verbal prowess with words to a certain point. There's also more to writing like in long form. That is not just about coming up with words that sound good at that moment, like how they service the greater whole. And in any event, if I have, I've got several serious challenges as an artist, but one of them is that I got my hands in a bunch of different kinds of media over the course of time. There's the acrylic painting, there's the digital 2D stuff, there's the time-based digital stuff, there's instant art. I did a smidge of plastic assemblage art that I'm still really drawn to, even though I haven't produced a whole lot more in that vein. I play guitar. I love singing. I taught myself a little bit of like basic piano, keyboarding. And then when I start making like time-based works again, like video works and things like that, well, maybe now I need to create some original music to go with this original video. And the mission creed, just it never lets up. And there's always Part of my brain is like, oh, I can learn how to do that. I just got to dive in. After a certain point, it's like, God, now I have all of these different things that all take time. They all take time. And eventually, we all kind of have to pick. Mm. We're not going to get to do every single great idea or bad idea that comes across our mind. We're going to have to pick and choose.
0: Well, then what helps you decide what to do next?
1: Oh, gosh. What can I accomplish today? What does this day look like? Do I have time to go to the studio? If I don't have time to go to the studio, then can I do stuff here at home? Maybe I can't be at studio or home. Maybe I I can send some messages to people to maybe get more things going on, like podcast interviews, gallery shows, letting people know things I'm already involved in. I try and find something I can push forward on any given day.
0: And that's kind of the thing that keeps you rooted into stepping forward to the next thing and moving. Because, you know, because the
1: alternative is to just stop juggling let all the balls drop to the floor and go, well, I guess that's that. Not picking up those again. That's unacceptable.
0: What is it that is unacceptable about half finished or unfinished things? I have lots of half finished and
1: unfinished things. That part is fine in and of itself. But if I, if I just don't make progress on any of them ever again, like that would be No, of course. I definitely have a lot of half finished and unfinished things that will not be finished and that's okay. I use a gardening metaphor for a lot of my studio practice. Have you ever done any serious gardening or semi-serious gardening?
0: We've done a few garden-y things, and we have neighbors that they leave their dogs, just come into the the front little patch of right. the garden and stuff. I've kind of stopped putting oh, well. so much effort into it.
1: I did some gardening for a couple of years hmm. and maybe like three or four years total. Yeah. You go in with the best of intentions. Like, okay, here's, here's my tomatoes. Here's my carrots. Here's my peas. You got neat little rows and things. Yep. And then maybe the tomatoes are gangbusters, but then the carrots aren't coming up and you don't know why. And the peas are sort of, eh, maybe I'll plant some, you know, where the carrots didn't come up. Maybe I'll plant some corn. Maybe i and so your plan changes. And then, and then like, oh, gosh, the corn's not coming up either. What's going on with this? But then, then the seasons change, the conditions change, the weather changes, and suddenly the carrots start coming up. And you're like, oh, okay. And then it starts off with like orderly aspirations. Like, oh, I have, I have all my colors of paint right here. All right, I have brushes. I've got everything I need. But then things change and not everything I plant comes to fruition. And then some things that I forget about for a while eventually they may turn up and they may start producing Mm -hmm. the trick is to just keep tending the garden keep going back to the studio whether that's kitchen table or like a special room that only has your art things in it keep going back to the garden keep doing not just the planting of the seed and the watering but the weeding protecting it from pests and vagabonds and and just keep up that relationship Put the effort into that and to create the conditions where it's possible Possible for something to emerge. It's not a certainty. It's not 100% like, oh, this is absolutely going to be the defining masterwork of my generation. The work has to continue. It doesn't happen without not just applying yourself once, but again and again and again. Call it an art work because it takes work to make that work. The arts, sometimes it's doing like my social media stuff. Got to do some tooting of your own horn. Hey, check out my links. Get on my Patreon. Buy a print or a work of art from me. Come to my open studio.
0: What is your Patreon? Why not use that as a perfect segue for that? Oh
1: yeah. Oh uh, well, my Patreon. I think it's at patreon.com/slash Leah Shane Dixon. I have had it going for. I guess about a year as I kind of did a soft rollout of it at the beginning of the year I'm starting to be a little more assertive with that. At the Patreon I'm trying to do a number of things that kind of go into more depth. I do lots of studio updates of works in progress. Uh, sometimes I'll show little process videos that show different parts of the actual material process that or processes that I use frequently. Mm-hmm. I'll draw full res digital art things that are just for the people on my patreon just trying to go into more depth and writing more about all the things that kind of go into my art life it's more depth than can be found on the social media the facebook page or the instagram and i'm happy to have people there too yeah the the patronage aspect really does help as a motivating factor not just because like oh hey i've got a little bit of money coming in every month from this but Mm -hmm. also it's knowing like oh I've got so far I know most of the people that are on my Patreon being able to envision like specific people like oh yeah Leah's gonna see this and Mark is gonna see this and Vinny is gonna see this and like I can more concretely picture that segment of my audience And, and I feel like it's also helping me maybe get a little more organized for like if I want to publish a little art book one day like self publish a little art book I'll have things that I wrote all along the way to reference like I'll be able to look back and kind of see this sort of accumulation of the documentation of my work and practice in a way that goes into much more depth than I put on social media
0: so you mentioned a couple of times about something being beautiful I sort of wanted to poke that a little bit and ask a little more about what do you define as beautiful and what makes yeah, something beautiful to you I
1: think um you know I like to think about it in terms of like how they would describe certain angelic entity it's not just pretty oh she's really pretty but something that has there's a visual dazzle there but also have you seen those uh angel memes it's like you know what is it the multi-spinning wheels with 87 eyes and things like that it's also be kind not
0: of, afraid right yeah like, be
1: not afraid exactly it's like a be not afraid moment it's visually dazzling but also like a little overwhelming like and so with the abstractions or you know somewhat like the psychedelic influences building in those experiences that if you open yourself up to them can be very something that prompts you to go a little deeper within yourself and to feel the emotions that can come when you're in the presence of something that feels bigger than you. It can be tricky to pull off a simple piece of paper or canvas, especially in like smaller sizes. But So do yeah, you work
0: something- really big? generally
1: speaking you know, like how big up, you work. i'm training up to larger work okay. in, in painting there's an exponential kind of the bigger the painting gets the more you can't just look at it up close like when you're close enough to actually apply the brush there becomes instead of just the view when you're up close there's the view from when you're way far back and then another view when you get up close to really begin to see the fine details and i just i feel like there's a lot more that i feel like i should layer into larger work i'm working on some large surfaces right now but none of them are anywhere near completion not even 25 yeah for the most part
0: i struggle with really um, big works big pieces uh, okay. I'm used to like five by seven panels tiny little things Yeah, because for me when I'm doing acrylic paintings I'm not really that much into digital forms for the most part because I really do like the tactile experience that's a really big element to what I get into 2d art or even 3d or experiential or installation work is I like feeling something physically and viscerally if I have that removal from the act finished work and Terms of my hand in it, I am just a little bit further disconnected from it.
1: That makes sense. I had some formative experiences. Certain digital processes feel very intuitive. I did grow up in a household where half my household was into computer science. My dad was an old school IBM programmer, and my brother's a newer school games programmer, graphics programming, and I had a computer around the house from the age of, I want to say like 11 or 12, which is, you know, cause I'm from an earlier time in which that was, it was a big deal. It was, it was, I think our first was the Apple II. Then later on, I had some time when I was living in Santa Cruz where a friend of mine had created this interesting live visual art performance program with the time what was a ridiculously overpowered computer compared to what most people had access to it was just enough power to get this basically, like a visual music instrument i was talking about visual music before and this was a visual music instrument so i i was one of a handful of people that kind of learned how to play this specific instrument but i didn't have access to that computer for very long once that went away it prompted this kind of what has sort of been a lifelong quest to continue on in that vein like it was in many ways a very important scene that led to me eventually taking up art again I had a, a few years break and then I started with analog art again I started painting and started playing acoustic guitar also and mm-hmm. a little electric guitar but mostly acoustic and then over time I ended up learning some digital art stuff that I put to use in the workplace I was working at this photo copy shop in Denver and the owner was trying to figure out how to prepare some tabs for the special like tab stock in the copier and it would put the little the label for the tab it would copy it right onto the tab and it would look really slick and usually we just did that like by paste up cutting out paper with an exacto knife and I don't know if we had a waxer or not but like really old school print technology to create them. But I saw he had a computer that had Quark Express on it. I had worked a job... I had tried to get into some more desktop publishing jobs. This one job that I worked at for, I don't know, I think I only lasted like two weeks because I knew how to use Quark. There's knowing how to use Quark Express and then there's being able to crank out 60 layouts in an eight hour day in Quark Express. And that's what they wanted. And I couldn't really do that. But man, I learned a whole lot of keyboard shortcuts and things in that two weeks. You know, I figured out how to do it for this. And then from there, I started I taught myself Photoshop, I taught myself Illustrator, and then eventually I started getting that kind of graphic art to work as a freelancer. And that's when I started getting interested in getting a computer that ran that so that I could do my own stuff. I had a job where they would me use the computer in my off time. And there was like a it was connected to a color copier that could print up to eleven by seventeen and then a wide format printer that printed on a 36 inch roll, which was a big deal back in the late 90s. That was a, And then from there, I applied to go to Pratt because I wanted to go to a real art school, but I wanted to go somewhere that I could have the foundation year, do my drawing and painting and sculpture and the foundation practices, but ultimately major in some kind of like digital art thing. And that's what I went there for. There's definitely a through line of all these little things along the way that brought me to where I am now. I totally relate to what you're saying about the visceral nature of paint. And Mm -hmm. when I started this, this collection of paintings that I've been working on for the last five years or so, I had gotten to a point where I was both very frustrated with what my computer was capable of and increasingly incapable of. And I was also just flat broke, just no possibility of saving up for a computer. I was going through a really rough patch in my life and really had to just save everything that I could for getting back on my feet I thought you know I've got a bunch of surfaces around the studio I'm just gonna spend a couple hundred bucks on paint and just start pushing around a blob of goo on a surface for a while I think that's okay But yeah, even as I'm painting, like there's part of my brain that thinks in Photoshop, that thinks in like compositing and layering the things that are fairly straightforward to do in Photoshop. It's a different way there if you want to do it in paint. And it's not going to be exactly the same, of course. But
0: But if it's in acrylic, you can do that layering process. Yes. And not
1: just with the direct paint application. But one of the reasons I chose acrylic is that I have a process for doing what I call handmade digital paintings, which I think of them as digital paintings, even while they're still just on the screen and in the computer, they're still digital paintings. If I print them out, whether it's like a color laser print or a, a giclée or something like that. But when I use either a color laser or a pigment-based inkjet, there's a way that you can transfer that image. You can literally, it becomes an element that I can collage in with more acrylic and make like a one of a kind digital object that has the layers of brushed on or the layers of of brushed on acrylic that hold it together that has a non-industrial texture. Right. Does that make sense? So what I did before, you know, I'm looking at at how to optimize this, but I I might even be able to do a one-step thing one day. But in the past, what I've done is, so I'd print out my color laser print and then i cover it with, there's a couple different kinds of acrylic goo that work for this. Let it dry, probably make a second or a third coat, let those dry. And then when they're really good and dry, I dunk the entire thing in water and Then the paper is now the weakest link because you have a layer of acrylic that is bonded to a layer of pigment, which is usually like ground up minerals. Mm -hmm. And then the paper is the biological, it's the weak link. All it needs is a little paper and a scrubby sponge and it starts peeling right off. And then you have this thing that's kind of, I call them fruit roll-ups because they kind of feel like fruit roll-ups. Right. Those can exist on their own, but they can also then be wrapped around canvas or panel. They could be adhered to, if I have an acrylic painting on paper, I could adhere these digital collage elements into my analog painting. That's where I'm hoping some future compositions are headed.
0: This is funny. I took this class maybe... 16, 17, 18 years ago, something like that, a while ago, of collage. And in particular, learning different kinds of decoupage techniques and multimedia inclusion into composition and how do you build things out three-dimensionally and and we ended up experimenting with fresh epson printer ink doing image transfers onto acetate Mm -hmm. so that you could do some of that kind of peeling off one and then layering it onto something as a transparency so you end up creating a gel medium transparency Of something like it's, you can't quite print from an Epson printer on the acetate directly, but you could, you could print it on paper and then transfer it sort of in this, this almost shadowy negative way onto the acrylic by transferring it from paper onto by like rolling it on now once once the ink is barely set on the paper so you still want it not fully absorbed into the paper but it was a really interesting process and then also we ended up experimenting with this thing called liquid light as a photography medium
1: I think one of my friends was mentioning this to me yeah
0: that stuff was so cool I had it took me a a lot of the stuff to figure out that my bottle had already been exposed to light and therefore wasn't useful anymore. But when oh, I no. did have, yeah, uh, when I did find a bottle of it unexposed and to pull out in a dark room to to do some of those printings on like wood and sheet metal and aluminum panel and other kinds of materials than just paper is that like a cyanotype got a friend who
1: does a lot of cyanotype stuff
0: maybe i mean it's not
1: is it is it it like a, a photographic thing where you know you brush it on something and then like maybe put your hand down and then shine light and then it would expose the part around your hand but not the part under your hand or is 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 it like a photographic reaction? Is
0: that It is photographic, but it's more like painting on development paper onto the surface. So you can print directly onto the surface through a negative. You can develop it as though you were shining light through film in your 30 seconds in the dark room as you're developing these papers and stuff. So that instead of thinking of it as a cyanotype, thinking of it more in terms of that actually creates more of a direct negative image. Right, you've, mm-hmm. you've got more of a negative space around your hand or the leaf right. or the whatever that is. This is more like you've got the negative in hand on your actual colloidal yeah. silver. Yeah, you know, like Total so silver. you've got a negative, and so you're creating a positive printed onto the material painted with the liquid light. You're developing that material as though you could put your photograph on any object that you could submerge in the development chemicals.
2: Oh, okay. That's fun.
0: It's super fun. You do have to be really careful that whoever you get it from, though, has been very diligent about light exposure to the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do? It was pretty expensive when this was more available to do. Physical analog printing 15, 20 years ago. But it was something really interesting. Is there a medium that scares you? Is there one that requires you to be brave?
1: That I actually do? Yeah. Let me chew on that for a minute. I mean, there's certain bravery that's required for any of it. I made this and it didn't exist before. I mean, I feel feel like the ones that seem most daunting to me are the ones that I probably don't do a whole lot, like 3D rendering or getting serious about music theory. I'll I'll ponder that for a minute.
0: Is there maybe a subject matter that requires some bravery? I'm very intimidated by the idea of doing
1: portraits because what if people don't recognize the person? What if I demonstrate that I really don't understand this person at all? What if I kind of daunting to me. Every now and again I ponder different portrait series. I haven't really started doing any of them though.
0: I have a friend who's a portrait illustrator and who I had to ask about how do you do this when a friend whose relative I've met this person asked me to do a portrait of their relative? And this is not something I'm all that familiar with. And I got some pretty good feedback from this other friend who does portrait. And they were saying like, the first things that you're going to want to do is when someone asks you to do a portrait is have them look at a series of your paintings or your website or something so that they get a sense of this is who they're asking to do this. Right, yeah. Because if they're asking an abstract painter to do a portrait, is there a disconnect or do they like certain rhythms and feels and flavors oh, that you yeah. know how to do?
1: And I actually know someone who does what he calls abstract portraits. They're they're abstracts, but each one is intended to represent a specific person.
0: Right. Get several reference images to come back yes. to. Yes. Those things are key to being able to really catch the person whose portrait you're making right, right. get it like 95 of the way there when you feel like it's basically done give it to the person who hired you give it to the the client and say okay what are some last minute tweaks it's 95 of the way done i can have it to you within one week with these minor last minute edits and sometimes they will be like oh no it's perfect most of the time they're like but this little smile needs to be going like this and great you get those top three edits and you have a timeline into which it's in their hands. You're most of the way there already. And that was immensely helpful for me in terms of getting their feedback. So they feel like they've got their input. They feel like they're listened to about it.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, some of the portraits that I'm thinking of are people I'd be choosing to really probably just to be like, hey, I think this por- that this person is really groovy and important. And I'm mm-hmm. going to try to make something that like points to them like, hey, check them out they're great.
0: The other thing that this friend also said was do tons of sketches, tons and tons and tons of just sketch that person, sketch that feel, sketch, get used to the rhythms of their features and their proportions. If you have enough reference imagery, let's say it's a famous person, a celebrity, someone that you, you really feel had a huge impact for you. That's a Public figure of some kind that having those reference points that you've then got into that rhythm of, okay, I've done like 10 sketches, 20 sketches, whatever. You've got enough of a, of a, a formal education background that that'll, that'll get your juices going, maybe. Yeah. Um, I feel like all,
1: all the things I'm thinking of that, that feel like they take bravery are things I'm not currently doing. Although, you know, I mean, it took some doing for me to really lean into the paint it has taken a certain stick-to-itiveness. And, you know, there were a couple of times where I walked into my studio, I'm like, none of these are any good. <laughs> and to like come back from that and go, okay, some of them are pretty good and some of them can be better. And I'm just going to keep working on them until they continue to improve. I feel like songwriting would be really challenging. Like, this is my song, and either I'm going to sing it, or I want you to listen to it, or want you to sing it. Like, that's, I don't know, that feels like, it feels very personal. It's all personal. Yeah. I think just about any creative pursuit requires a certain degree of bravery and, you know, just like accepting that a lot of people are going to scratch their heads and be like, but Why? Why do you need to do this? Like you could do a hundred other things, you know, and also because you, you usually can't do pretty much anything else while you're creating. Maybe you can, you know, TV or radio or something on, kind of in the background I don't know some people can have like conversations with people or whatever some people would find that distracting while I'm painting or while I'm playing guitar while I'm doing digital art I can't really be doing just about anything else there's a lot that you have to opt out of in order to opt in whatever Mm -hmm. it is you're making and that can can be disheartening at times
0: yeah well then You started, we started the conversation touching on your beginnings in terms of art. What would you tell to either a younger self or to someone just starting out with this process of finding their creative stuff? What would you say to them?
1: I would say discipline is remembering what you really want, organizing your choices around what you really want. I'm a fan of switching mediums when I get to a creative logjam like sometimes you'll get to it just dead end and you feel like the current stuff you're working on just isn't doing it for you and, it, and it's causing you more frustration than anything. You know, switch mediums. You know, it's good to have a couple that you're comfortable with, but in extreme cases, switch to a medium that you have no experience with whatsoever and explore that for a while because there's something, a liberating thing in that time where you don't really know what you're doing. So you don't know that you're doing something wrong I would say think carefully before signing on the dotted line to take out tens of thousands of dollars of student loans I would say find what art and artists are already happening in your local community Even if that's just, maybe you live out in the middle of nowhere and there's one coffee shop that has art on the walls. If they ever have any events where, you know, someone has put some fresh art up on the walls, go to that event, talk to the artists, make friends with other artists of other different kinds and especially ones that are in whatever your region is. Go to lots of art shows, look at lots of art, take mental notes or or actual written notes. You know, look at, look at what other people have done and are already doing. Ask yourself how that fits into what's happening now, how that fits into what you know about art history. Always keep digging into more art and artists. You don't have to know every single artist from the dawn of creation now, but just kind of slowly expand your visual vocabulary or whatever the vocabulary is of your art practice if you're a fiction writer read a lot of fiction and maybe other nearby neighboring art forms as well it's a challenging road and you know sometimes sometimes it can bring your life a lot of additional curveballs sometimes some you'll need to ask yourself like can I continue dealing with all not everyone is going to be able to answer yes to that. And if, you know, if, if, if someone is at a point where they're not making anything at all, I would, but they want to, I would say find one place in your dwelling where just the stuff related to your art resides. That might be one table, one table where you have your writing stuff, your visual art stuff, a small keyboard if you're a musician that wants to play keyboard. Find one place that you can dedicate to just your creative process, however large or small that is. And try not to let the rest of your life spill into that space. Figure out what your muse is like and try to arrange things so that they'll show up more often. Like that might mean having a window with natural light. It might mean maybe if your muses like cats, like maybe you can start putting out food for like the neighborhood cats. And, you know, maybe we'll get some cat visitor. Maybe you can get a cat if you have the means to get a cat. It's going to be very different for each person, but listening a lot to your intuition, try things on for size. If it doesn't fit you, if it's not your thing, try something else on. If you're not successful in, By whatever metric, personal metrics of success. If you're not feeling it in one medium, try another medium. I find that there's so many different ways that people can engage in creative art. What works for me is not going to work for you, is not going to work for the next artist. We're going to have different subjects we're interested in. We're going to have different mediums that we respond to. We're going to have different levels of access But, you know, mainly it's just keep at it. Sometimes there's points in our lives where we have to put all of that aside and just focus on whatever the major life issues, major life hurdles that we have in front of us, but can always go back. I think the main thing is to just not close the door forever. Or maybe, you know, even if it feels like the door has been closed forever, things could surprise you one day and you look up and you realize conditions are a little different now. Maybe I could try this again. I've had multiple phases of my life where both with, my art and with my musical pursuits where I've had to put them on ice for sometimes a couple years at a time but I was still able to return in this most recent wave for the visual arts I have now returned for life I may have other temporary times where I have to temporarily put it aside but it's with the understanding that I will keep coming back and I will keep making more things. Never is a long time, even if it seems like it's kind of far away at whatever particular moment. There's a comparison you could make to a river. You can walk away from the river, you can completely lose sight of the river, but the river will still be there and you can still find your way back to it. It can bring you those experiences again.
0: Do you have a favorite tool or ingredient that you keep coming back to and kind of always have? You could
1: make a case for the computer, even though I've been really enjoying my time doing almost exclusively paint for several years now. I am looking forward to returning to that.
0: For me, I have kind of a mad stupid of in Crimson as a pigment. I love its transparency. I love its richness. I love the way you can layer it, this as a pigment, as a paint. Do you have something like, oh yeah, this, I swear by this. Like I swear by bright angle brushes. Every single time I do something, I just feel... I have in my hand everything I need to do exactly what I want to do with paint with a bright angle brush of various widths and sizes and stuff. Like, do you have anything like that? The
1: tools that I've been the most jazzed about are recently, are kind of a relatively recent arrival. Mm. And that is using silicone tools of all shapes and sizes. Yes. do Do you work with silicone tools with your acrylics?
0: I have, I have so rarely done it, but every single time I engage with the paint in a totally new way. It's like frosting. It's this thick sculptural ingredient now instead of a thinly layered diluted. I like the
1: silicone tip tools themselves. I get a lot of times, I get a lot of them at Daiso, like a silicone basting brush. It's got these big fat bristles that are like little, little cylinders. And they, they drag these little, these tendrils or, yeah, yeah. Little tendrils and things. But also, if you get the silicone sheets, this is kind of my power tool right now. The silicone sheets, I'll paint on the sheet, let it dry, and then you can peel the paint right off of the sheet. And then it's freestanding paint that can go wherever you want to go. So my painting process is, also partially a collage process in that I'm collaging pieces of paint into my compositions. It started, it started, i trying to remember what the first thing I started using it for was. But I, I started with different baking molds, you know, like little cupcake cups and things that you would pour like chocolates or candy into. I'm starting to use them a bit as like stamps, but also to make a three-dimensional structure to the texture of the paint. There's a bunch of different things that I am discovering can be done with using it as a direct tool or just as a, a receptacle for the paint itself. That's also pretty easy cleanup.
0: Yeah, that's nice. Which is
1: really nice. And But yeah, it started because I, I was saving like all of my paint scraps. I'm trying as much as possible to put as little plastic as possible into the water system and to the landfill. So I'm saying 99% of my paint scraps So yeah, not like, you know, I I now I've got like these stacks of 11 by 14 boards. and Each board is like a tray of different paint chips. You know, when I'm looking for a paint chip for my painting to start flipping through and go, no, no, not that one, not that one. Oh, this one, this one might work and then start layering it in. It's the tool I'm most on fire about right now. Nice. um, All the silicone tools.
0: That's so fun. I would never have thought of A silicone, like a baking sheet or something for a a silpat kind of thing. That makes so much sense. It goes back to the
1: the handmade digital, the fruit roll up things Uh that I'm doing because that that was liberating the pigment from the paper by means of the acrylic. A lot of the reason I I got into acrylic painting is because I wanted to be able to meld the acrylic fruit roll-ups with knowing how to paint. I took some painting classes at the High School for the Arts, and I took some at Pratt. But really, the last five years, I've sort of been teaching myself how to paint in the way that is most interesting to me. So yeah, and then once I figured that out about the silicone, then I just, I started looking for the largest silicone sheets I could find. So far, I think the biggest one I've found is about two feet by three feet. And I've got that on my work table. And I have several that are 11 by 14. I've got a couple that are like 18 by 24. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely changed the way I approach paint, mostly by using it as a substrate, but I do enjoy the texture it gives with the different tools.
0: Can you tell listeners where to go to support you and toot your own horn and kind of how can listeners find your work or contact you to hire you or commission something or like how do they support you best? What's the best way for them to
1: link tree link that I gave you is the main hub of it right now. Up usually at the top, I've got the ways people can port me monetarily for my art, either with the uh, Patreon or also the Angel's Gate Studio Artist Emporium page. Angel's Gate is where I have my art studio. I've been there for about five years, five and a half years now. The Studio Artist Emporium is where 14 of us have different artworks for sale. And then also half of the proceeds of that go... To benefit Angels Gate Cultural Center directly, they're a nonprofit visual arts organization. Those right off the bat are I'd be delighted if people avail themselves of that. People can also email me at Leah Shane Dixon at Gmail, and if they're in Southern California, I'm always happy to have people visit my studio and contact me to arrange a studio visit. And if there's any people out there that can help me get my art into more places, I'm always looking for more venues and shows to get in. But yeah, if we can share the the Linktree link with them, that would be great.
0: Let me just speak it right now. It is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash L-E-A-H-S-H-A-N-E-D-I-X-O-N. That is linkter.ee slash Leah Shane Dixon.
1: People can also, they want to follow me on social media. That's always nice. You know, like and share all that. Yeah. And people can contact me directly through the email. I think that's most of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. If you were a Muppet, what kind of Muppet would you be? Or combination of Muppets? I feel like I would be a composite.
1: I feel like I have kind of the fashion sense of Gonzo. I have the sense of humor of Fozzie Bear. But I also have a bit of Statler and Waldorf in me.
0: Oh, yeah. They're classic commentators.
1: Yeah, yeah. I always I like their... Uh,
0: Hanging in the well, gallery. I, yeah. I,
1: I, I like that... Uh, the one that goes, Well, I thought it was great. Yeah, it was pretty good. Well, it was all right. Yeah, well, there were some moments that weren't horrible. Well, actually, it was not that great. Well, I think it was actually really quite bad. I thought it was awful. Boo! Boo! Anyway, before they where go from <laughs> to hating it, in like, the course of 15 seconds, curmudgeonly dudes. Yeah, I would say I'd say if I had to pick one of those, I think it would probably be Fozzie Bear.
0: Oh, they're also great. I love yeah. I love them just as an appreciator of their creative influence on the world mm-hmm. and their input on how a couple of generations fundamentally related to performance as just go in because you love it. Mm-hmm. Just do it because you don't have to be great. You just have to really love it. And that that was a very genuine approach to life that I really appreciated seeing on the screen as a youngster.
1: I also appreciate the theme song anytime I'm getting ready for any art show or any event that I'm putting on. It's time to play the music. It's time to light the light. I will often be humming that to myself as I'm grinding through the work in preparation.
0: I love it. Thank you so much, Leah Shane Dixon. I really appreciate you taking the time with me on Mixed Media Talk Patreon page to support the artists and you can find us at www.patreon.com slash underscore talks. Thanks so much.